0: welcome to story comic presents where we interview amazing storytellers and artists this is episode 64 i am your host barney smith of storycomic.com and we're excited to have back with us the internationally acclaimed cartoonist and educator merrick bennett merrick how are you doing? Oh, it could be worse. How are you? You know what? It's it's uh, still still living the dream. You know, we're we're still here. So, and you know, before we went live, before we went on the year, we we're just talking about that. You were on last year, uh, I think, like episode five or six or so. And we were we were you know kind of prep and said, hey, you know, this uh, coronavirus thing, which, you know, it's gonna be weird. We're gonna be have to close the schools for a couple of weeks or. <laughs> And, and yeah. here we are we're pushing forward and we're, we're already a year a year ahead of th- a year into it and and uh we're we're still here
1: <laughs> for now yeah <laughs> yeah yeah I was thinking about that like what a what a moment I think about that probably every day that that moment of a year ago this week or next week um I was in the middle of a school residency nearby yeah. here and I remember saying something along the lines to you of like, yeah, well, they, they school might be closed uh, next week, but I, and they say it might even last till the end of March, which is just unbelievable, but who knows? <laughs> we'll see. And yeah, fast forward. I, I like to think of myself as like living in the future. You know, right. here we are in this dystopic future that none of us could have imagined, but what would you tell yourself last year You know, if you go back and be take yourself by the collar and be like, "Listen, self,"
0: (laughs) I was like, "Oh, sweet summer child." If only you know what you're to expect. Yeah, yeah.
1: Get real, get real, self.
0: And we and we talked about last year. We were you were you were you were promoting your your Kickstarter that we talked about, and here it is. I have a copy of it in my hand, and. And, and so just uh do a recap how did that go how did the how did the kickstarter obviously the if it was funded because i have a copy of the book in my hand yeah. um, how did that go for for you was it everything that you expected was there any hiccups that you saw throughout the process or
1: it was a pretty straightforward project i mean it was it was my sketchbook from that trip to um Sharjah, united arab emirates and right. um I mean, there was some. There was a lot of editing. I I spent more time editing it than I did drawing it. You know, yeah. I was done drawing it within a couple weeks, and then I spent the next five months editing it. And the Kickstarter was kind of near the end of that process, so there wasn't much left to do. I just um, I just I kept it purposefully like I kept my expectations low and my goal small. And then um, and and thankfully people backed it. And uh, and then you know then I had a book that was coming out in the middle of the pandemic so that was interesting <laughs> like I said, it could be worse you know right yeah
0: and you and and we and we'll, we'll talk about it a bit you have uh, lots of projects that you've that you've been working on and you and you've lined up and and you're also a part of the uh and, and you're also one of the one of the artists and member of the uh, the most costly journey mm-hmm. um, did you want to just uh, and this just got funded
1: from Kickstarter correct uh, yeah technically uh, it's, it was a couple months ago a couple months but, ago okay but we're just finishing up the book now yeah okay Do mean, you want you know, the the artwork has been done actually for a couple of years and okay. um, this book has just been um, it's a beautiful thing to have 15 16 plus artists involved in it and 20 plus storytellers. Um, it, it's I've never worked on a book you know with this many, contributors, um, not even to mention all the clinicians and nurses and, and uh, translators and all the people involved. Um, but partly uh, because of that, it, it even though the artwork was done, there's just a lot of moving parts, a lot of editing to do, a lot of shaping the book. So it's been, um, we thought we'd have it done by January. It's finally coming together now. And we're just like, tightening a couple screws and bolts before we send it out. So you've, you've had, you've worked on anthologies with other people. You've
0: also done your own Kickstarters on your own. How, what Mm -hmm. would you see as the difference between working on something that is anthology based as your expectations and work as compared to doing something on your own? What are some of the pros and cons of both?
1: Well, other anthologies I've been in, I've been a contributor. So I've, um, you know, I, I send in my three or ten pages and then several months later you get this big book back and you're like, oh, let's see what Barney did in that one. And you know <laughs> it's an exciting moment. And this is kind of the opposite. It's like we've we've had that that set of of covers there are the those are the covers of the sort of in-house self-printed um Uh, mini comics that the clinic was putting out and distributing around the migrant community. These are all, each one is a specific story or collection of stories told by um, migrant farm workers in Vermont, most of whom are um, Latino American um, and and most of whom are undocumented. Um, So the storytellers work closely with with a, an artist who's connected in some way to New England, most of the artists are from Vermont or in Vermont or were in Vermont at the time. Mm. Um, so there's there's that geographical connection, and um, and so then we the the idea was just there's there's um, there's a certain kind of medicine in just telling your story and being heard. So just on the storyteller level. Working with somebody to really get down the details and represent it in comics form is a um, a deeply healing process. These are these are stories of trauma, stories of struggle, stories of um, coping and and victory and trials. Um, mm-hmm. So and, and just on that level, telling your story and working with somebody to work through it is, is incredibly healing. And then sharing it with your community is healing. And then reading somebody else's story that reflects and connects with yours is healing. And then for I, I, as an artist coming from outside the, the migrant farm worker community, it's incredibly eye-opening to read each story and be like, oh my gosh, that I can connect to that story. We have something in common. Where before reading that story, you know, my only, maybe my only, my or one's only contact with the migrant community was hearing some negative news story about undocumented migration. Um, And I always say, you know, if you're sipping a glass of milk or coffee with cream in it or um, eating some pizza with cheese on it, you know, while reading these stories, you're consuming the products that these storytellers produce or have play a role in producing, and um, and New England's dairy industry runs on their life experiences. Probably. Right? Um,
0: you see it. So yeah, the this the, the genre of like the biography, as you pointed out, this one here is kind of a a. Contemporary biography. You do some autobiographical work as well, where you portray yourself as a as a rabbit, and we talked about that last year. Um, but you also have Freeman Colby, which is a biography that's historical. Have any of those separate projects uh, um, has been more successful because of the information or some of the education you got from previous pro- biography projects? Mm,
1: yeah, they all. That's that's interesting. They all build on each other. Um, whether you intend them to or not. Um, I'll give you an example of that. Uh, we'll edit out the part where I um around <laughs> on my desk frantically trying to find something. Um, well, I'll just describe it to you and, and I can uh, share it with you later. Um, so I, I started like the Freeman Colby books well, backing up, so, um, like, autobio, I think, is the easiest place to start. Like, what happened to you today? Okay, draw three or four boxes, draw it as a comic. What do you notice? Like, the experience changes when you draw it because you, you say, well, I'm not going to include the thing that happened in the background or this part that doesn't contribute to the story. Well, what is the story? It's it's a creative construction that you're making, right? Um, even... It, the 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 conceit is like it's autobiography. It's nonfiction. Yeah, but it's it's constructed. It's art, right? right. It, it's something that it's art in the artificial sense, not in a pejorative way. But it's something you put together
0: yeah.
1: uh, and present it to yourself or to the page or to a reader. Um, and that's autobiography. I think it's it's an inherently creative process to say who am I. That's what really this this um of sketchbook kind of my favorite parts of that book are all about that. Why do you draw yourself as a rabbit? Why do you draw, why are you drawing me as a cat or something? Well, because you said you liked cats, you know, and um, and that tells me something about your heart. I think those, those were my favorite parts of the book where we kind of question what we're doing when we draw ourselves. Right. Um, and that's a very ancient thing. Uh, you go back into cave paintings and the uh, the the little animal figures in the oldest cave paintings are like human figures with ears and tails and snouts, you know, in those old Indonesian cave paintings. It's something people have been doing, and they're hunters. <laughs> Autobiography cartooning, you know, right? Um, and well, maybe it was a part of a religious ceremony. Well, you know a lot of people, it's kind of a religious ceremony to read the Sunday comics in the paper every week, you know, if if you're my generation, that was, that was a big part of Sunday morning is getting those comics, um, as as big as going to church or something like that for me. Um, And, and then like doing auto bio, I, I started, I was traveling around in Slovakia and doing like family stories and that quickly becomes community and quickly becomes region and you realize oh now I'm researching history I came back to New England and thought why have I never done this why have I never like said I'm a cartoonist who am I what am I drawing here <laughs> why do I have to go somewhere else to have that experience of digging into the ground beneath my feet um, so that's what became Freeman Colby really is is finding an old diary you know that was archived I didn't find it find it but finding it in an old box and then starting to draw this series of graphic novels um, and life happens as you're drawing you know it takes a couple of years to do a 500 page book <laughs> um, so while that's happening like I have also been working on the uh, the El Viaje project which is the the migrant farm worker stories and I realized you know going back to the civil war stories of Freeman Colby he is he's a migrant far from home Uh, just trying to survive, just trying to stay on the right side of the law, but, you know, not get his head blown off in the civil war. And he's meeting all these people who are migrants, who are refugees from slavery, who are refugees from battles, um, who are wounded refugees from the trauma of war. Um, And so as I'm exploring that, I'm realizing he's not alone there. You know, there's other people who can tell parts of his story that he doesn't want to tell, that he doesn't Mm -hmm. Include in his letters home to his family, um, and then you you question yourself like, okay, in my auto bio stuff, what am I not telling?
0: Right.
1: What am I missing here? That's that's a piece I tried to ask in that book too. Like, here I am at a book fair. We're talking to authors. We're talking to artists. We're talking to book lovers. Wait a minute. Who are we not talking to here? What does the guy who drives the taxicab say? What does the guy you know back at the hotel? in the kitchen say you know i'm just trying to trying to also ask those questions too i mean that's very much what el viaje is about too what's your story you're you're the person who feeds new england you know and and can't even show your face in town and has to hide out you know one wants to plant a garden. So you have to find some spot that's not visible from the road. So you can plant a garden with your daughter because you've lived here for 10 years, you know, and you're still not accepted as a member of the community. Um, just last summer, I, I kind of stumbled across a gravestone here in town that was, um, it's a really remarkable, peculiar gravestone. It's the gravestone of uh, an African-American Revolutionary War veteran. And there's so many, I'll, I'll send you the I'll link to the project and what I've posted of it. Um, his name was Jeremiah Crocker. And it just says on the gravestone died, uh, I think July 14th, 1836, age about a hundred years. just thinking like just reading that gravestone it's like the teaser on the back of a novel or graphic novel right and just reading that i just realized there's so much i don't know about my own hometown here in new hampshire right Um, i had no idea his his name i found his name was not included in the genealogies in the town history was not included on the revolutionary war memorial in town um and yet he served four tours of duty over the course of the war, <laughs> was enslaved in Massachusetts, arrived in this town before or right around the time the first bridge was built, saw this town go from nothing to a thriving early 19th century village, right. um, and managed to become so much a part of town that when he died, they made him a gravestone. They wrote who he was on it. That's the only reason he survives to history is because he was such a part of town. And yet he's like written out of so much of the history. Um, his, His story was not told and people don't know who he is. And he died right around 1836 is just a couple years before Freeman Colby was born. So Freeman Colby was born into this town that no longer had this amazing oral history from this, African-American Revolutionary War veteran, Hmm. Um, and the identity of the town was changing. And I realized like finding that and finding Jeremiah Crocker's story from the 1700s into the 1800s and thinking of what an integral part of this town he was um, and that he could just disappear so quickly then because of that, who are you? What stories are you telling? What stories are you not telling? Like the town also goes through that process and they went through that process within freeman colby's lifetime so by the time he goes off to fight the civil war the way he writes his letters you can see he has very little sense of what slavery was what racism was he just doesn't have any vocabulary or understanding of it Um, and it really i i'm i found that of course after doing two volumes of freeman colby's story so i'm i'm now taking that knowledge and that understanding and working it into volume three uh, because Freeman Colby is, he's learning as he goes too. Um, and that knowing that deep hidden layer of his own town's history and my own town's history uh, enables me to kind of question that when he's telling his own story and and add those layers in as I work.
0: Right. Um, so you, because ha- you are working on a volume three mm-hmm. of Freeman Colby, uh, so, uh, the gentleman that you mentioned before that was, is that going to be like a prequel to Freeman Cole, Kobe, Are you thinking about making a, a book on, on him as well?
1: I have, um, yeah, I have a folder right here, um, on my desk. That is that work in progress. I, <laughs> I have a couple, um, bevies of folders here that are works in progress. And Jeremiah Crocker is one of those. Um, but you know, it, it, that, I, I don't know. We could talk all evening. I could talk all evening about that project. When you say, "Okay, who is Jeremiah Crocker? How did this guy? How did he live in town for over half a century?" And then by the time Freeman Colby is a kid, you know he he doesn't show any knowledge of this history of the town. Um, who and and to realize Jeremiah Crocker had a family. He had kids. They all lived here in town. Um, and yet they kind of disappear from the official history so quickly that got me thinking, okay Is he the only is his family the only family here in town where that happened? Or is it possible? And it turns out there's a whole community here in town, you know that Um, and that project quickly became like, okay, what's jeremiah crocker's life story? And what what were his experiences? what were the, at least the names of his family, you know, if we, if we can't get their stories um, and how could we get some sense of what their life was like? Well, you have to go look at other people's stories. And it turns out every town around here, I found a story of um, an Indian raid in the French and Indian war, the next town over. And, uh, and it, the story is told that this young boy and an enslaved man were going out into the fields. And when they saw um, a group of, of Indians coming to raid the town, they ran for help. The boy escaped, but only because the enslaved man distracted the Indians and was shouting and hollering and alerted the whole town, save the town. Yeah. Everybody got into the meeting house. They all looked out there. The enslaved, I, I'm thinking on his name. Um, they said the enslaved man was captured by the Indians, taken off to Canada. And we never heard from him again. Um, actually, the kid was captured, too, and he was redeemed a couple years later. But the way it's told, it's like, yeah, the Indians, they came and they took our slave. And right. like, did he go with them? Was he, <laughs> you know, was he captured? A lot of people who were captivated up to Canada. When they came to be redeemed, they were like, "No, I'm good. I don't. I don't want to go back to New England where women don't have any rights or where. Right. They're free. um I, I think I'll stay up here. It's pretty cool up here. But, and that I started turning up all these stories of, of towns in New Hampshire. Like it was a. It's a whole period in 18th century New England history where clearing the land of these towns was done um, largely by I don't know about largely, mostly, part. It was done partly by enslaved people, right? Um, and the deal would be, you know, I I have to go up and clear this patch of land, and then I'll get my freedom, or clear the land, serve in the Revolutionary War, good service, as defined by these people who have economic power. Now I get my freedom, and that they were always working towards freedom, always working towards family, you know boom we're right back on el viaje those are the themes of what people are doing now as they're undocumented in new england right working for family working for options
0: right yeah I and mean, it's it's amazing how things don't change over a couple hundred years yeah mm-hmm. do you so let me ask, so when you when you talk about the your uh, uh, james crocker did you have how, how much of it do you, when you, when you're kind of like forming a story, that you have to use creative, yeah, you know, some creative license on? You know what? This is going a little slow here, or I need to, um, I got to make sure the reader keeps flipping the pages. How much mm-hmm. of that with Freeman Colby or some of your other, uh, uh, some of your other projects that you that you take some of that creative freedom, or do you feel like you it's 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 more important to st- day the course on anything that you find that's um, only the information that you're able to research?
1: Um, First thing that comes to mind with Freeman Colby, I have a finite number of letters, finite number of diary pages. Um, And if there are gaps, I go looking in Walt Whitman's notebooks. I go down to the, well, I don't go anymore to the Historical Society in Concord, but I love going into the reading room there. At um, uh, New Hampshire Historical Society, and they have a big box of the letters of Nurse Sarah Lowe that I can pull out and be like, "What's happening in the ward today, Sarah?" <sighs> and, um, it you know I can fill in those gaps, uh, and and I can go as deep as I want with photographs and and artwork, um, and I can pretty much track down the newspapers they were reading to get a sense of what they knew about the news and. Um, and the books they were reading, if they mention them, um, but you know it's all built around the letters. It's all built around this time-limited narrative of, well, I went off to the Civil War, <laughs> and then a year passed, and then another year passed, and then another year passed, and then I was home. Like that's as deep as you want to go. It's only going to be three years. When you when you take a life like Jeremiah Crocker's life, um. Well, I think cartooning. Uh, I've been I've been thinking about this a lot as doing defining cartooning with people in different presentations or school residencies. And I always say it's like it's that art form where you you leave out more than you put in. You know, I don't know. if We talked about this last year.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, I was so I was just saying like working from a diary or letters. It's a very you can go as deep as you want, but it's limited. It's three years of Freeman Colby's life, right? Um, but looking at a topic like jeremiah crocker and and what his story tells us about you know new england history united states history um the ec- economics of this 18th and 19th centuries racism in a small town mm. um and 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 what it tells us about resistance to racism you know among the people of town and and jeremiah crocker's behalf um and on his part but that that leads to other people's stories, you know, that you can't understand that story just as like, well, he came to town 1780 and then he died 1836. It's not that kind of a, it's not a travel narrative or a a series of actions. It's again, like, what is the story? How do you tell it? You could, I, I have a timeline of his life of the different dates that I've been able to track down or other people have tracked down. He wrote a pension application that lists what he did when, you know, and, There are ways to do that, but that's not really the story. I think, I think the story is, um, okay. We know these little crumbs, uh, and then all the gaps in between we'll never know Hmm. because, uh, Freeman Colby growing up a white man in 1840s, 1850s, 1860s Henniker he had access to certain resources he was able to write down his diary and put it into the historical society right by the by the early 20th century it's being archived in paper on a shelf somewhere or by the mid 20th century right. um jeremiah crocker didn't have access to those systems of archiving his thoughts his experiences i don't know if he wrote a diary i don't know if he could write or read uh but he just didn't have like a community that said what's your story? we're not going to save this. So we just don't have it in his words as far as I know. Right. Um, so to tell that story, I feel like I have to go to like, okay, who, where else can we get a few more crumbs? Well, There's this guy from Canterbury named Samson Battis, who uh, also served in the revolutionary war also returned to Canterbury, New Hampshire also is buried in Canterbury. But he's buried with a standard Revolutionary War veteran um, headstone. It doesn't tell his life story written by the people of town done in memorial. It's a standard one that you get as part of your pension. And he's not in the graveyard. Mm -hmm. He's off down the hill over in the woods by some field stones that are also like non gravestone gravestones of the African-American community of Canterbury. and, just, and so i need to i i'm like learning his story and then bringing that back to jeremiah crocker and saying well what does that tell us how does that like shed light on this story um i think you have to look at it from a lot of different directions a lot of different angles a lot of different people's stories right um the other the other angle is i think i mentioned this before like what are we not telling what are we leaving out like cartooning right. is leaving stuff out so that you get to the heart of the story and um there's a marker i had a picture of it here by my desk and suddenly it's probably fell off the wall um there's a marker nearby just a couple miles from my house here that's a nice stone marker that the town put up um, and it says uh 1763 site of first frame house in henneker first like two-story house that right. was not a log cabin uh, first child born. Mm. And I always thought it was an interesting sort of statement of what is the town because it doesn't mention all the native peoples who were here before 1763. you know, it oh, yeah. just mentions this one child being born right as the town was kind of became a town and was chartered as a, a town and started organizing itself. Um, so so the town is not the land. the town is the social group that erects this monument and says first child born in this town not on this land but in this town um well digging around a little more i realized you you kind of there's certain clues of whose farm is whose and and what site is what that site is the place where the first enslaved person was brought to town Mm. about five years before there was even a town here uh, this woman was brought here. We don't know her name cause it's not in the town history. It just mentions right. that she was enslaved here in town by that same family. So that marker, like that says first house in town, first baby born in town, first child born in town does not say first enslaved person in town. Right. Um, and, and that's like, and that's part and parcel with the story of Jeremiah Crocker whether th- I, they may not have even known each other, you know, but or maybe they were part of a community here in town. I haven't connected their stories, but they're connected in that sense. Like these are stories that were intentionally left out that are the negative space of the story of town. And mm-hmm. that tells you an awful lot about the town.
0: So as, yeah. as basically as the writer of the script and as and also creating the and, and, and the cartoonists of, of of these books, compared to your autobiog- autobiographical work, where um, it, to do to doing these, do you feel as though that you kind of co own the story, or do you feel like you own the story because mm. you're the one
1: creating the work? Yeah. Oh, good question. Um, that's something with with El Viaje, That's something that we had to sort out because who owns. Who's responsible for the artwork? Who's responsible for the story? Whose story oh, yeah. is it? If you're collaborating with somebody to draw this comic out, how how do you think of it? Is it, is it their story in comics form, or is it a comic based on their story? Um, my approach with Jeremiah Crocker has been, yeah, it's a delicate line to walk because the more the more you put into the artwork back to like leaving details out, the more I put into the artwork, the more, the further it gets from Jeremiah Crocker's story. Mm. Uh, He's, he's like Freeman Colby. I mean, Freeman Colby, I I have no idea what he looked like, right? I don't have any photos of him. Jeremiah Crocker, same thing. I have no photos of him. Um, I don't even know. Uh, He's described actually there, there is a description of him, a really wonderful description of him uh very sentimental but by someone who i think as a child knew him Hmm. and actually it's it's the only description of somebody from in the entire 400 page town history that is told from the point of view of a child oh wow by someone who was a kid when before he died uh so so i think it's actually his memories of sitting on his knee and hearing stories of the revolutionary war you know but um, but if I if I try to draw that scene, what am I putting into that scene? How what gives me the right to say? Well, I think he had a candelabra on the table and a dog by his feet, and you know, I. But I but I need to draw that scene. We need to see that scene, right. but we don't need to see what I imagine into that scene. We need to see the idea of that scene. Right the idea of these kids who identified as white in this small town, when they thought of who is a Revolutionary War soldier, their image of the Revolutionary War was this tall African-American guy in his regimental uniform, which he would wear to every muster day. And he would stand by the flag and by the men, even as an old man, hundred, almost 100 years old, right? He would show up at muster day and stand out on the field with the local militia. Mm. At a time when New England was becoming more and more segregated um, and abolitionism was taking off, but also a reaction to it was starting, was really um, setting in, he makes himself visible. He, he goes to every town event and he shows up again and again. If you know to read for it in the town history, you're like, there he is. That's him. Mm. That's the major Right. You know, he that was his nickname and and he shows up and he inserts himself into town history and and puts himself there so it's like he's doing that i feel like he's whether it's intentional or not jeremiah crocker was making himself visible like standing getting photo bombing being like nice town, I live here too nice <laughs> country you know i'm a revolutionary war did I ever tell you about the time I was in the revolutionary war you know yeah in, not in a not in a needy kind of way. In an insistent way, he's like taking all the kids on his knee. The kids all loved him. They loved right. his stories. He's sharing those stories with a kid who's going to grow up to write the town history book. Who's going to record them into that book, and that's transmitted, you know, I, to I don't know a 21st century cartoonist who finds right. that story and says, "This is amazing." How does nobody know about this around here? How did I grow up here in town? Never hearing the story of this hundred year old guy who was enslaved in Massachusetts and then free by the time he came to town and served in the revolutionary war and like was at every major event in town history for over 50 years. How did I not learn his story? All right. We got to, you know, we got to know this story, but do we need to know like, Merrick's version of what it looked like? Or do we need to, how my goal I think is to, this is a really long answer to your question, I guess. My goal is to stick as close as I can to the primary source. Right. But then step back and say, primary source is a subjective thing. This is something that somebody wrote down at a historical moment for a historical reason. Right. What are their limitations? What can we say knowing that like, what's missing from this primary source. Okay. Let's go grab something to fill that hole, but be clear that we're grabbing something to fill that hole.
0: Right. Cause like, cause, and how much, how much are you, are you being like consciously aware that you might be like inferring your own reaction to, if you were there at the time, or do you feel as though that, that do you, you you put yourself into the story or do you feel as though that you kind of want to as much as possible be objective with speaking to feel that you are witnessing it? Or being a part of it, how would you compare that? Or,
1: yeah, I guess I think with um, with Freeman Colby, I've I've made an intentional. The first book is all his diary. The words right. are all his. Um, and and if I had to change them a little for readability, I put a little mark under the panel so you could always tell. And and if you want to, you can go to the historical society, look up his diary. And check and you'll see, like, oh, America inserted a comma there, so it read better. (laughs) Just minor little details. But with volume two, I couldn't, I just couldn't do that because this is 1863. Mm. You know, the war has changed completely. They're they're marching into Virginia. He's encountering slavery firsthand. He's not writing in his letters and his diary entries what's really going on, what he's really seeing. You know, he's writing home to his little sisters at home. He's not going to tell the actual story of what it's like to be in a hospital ward after a battle or what people are coming across the lines, escaping from slavery and coming and telling stories of their families still back there on the plantations. It's intense stuff. Um, And yet it's so he's not telling that. So I've got to fill that in. But I want you always to know it's like it's no longer. I put little marks at the bottom of the page so you know the sources. And then I have a whole section in the back that walks through the different sources and says, here's why I included her story here at this point in the in the book. Here's why I think like they never met, but she's telling a part that he would have seen if he had been in the city at that time. So I put her in there and I put him in there so that you could understand um, the different sides of the scenes. So I want, that, I want that to be visible. I want that right. to be part of the storytelling.
0: You are presently, if and if anybody's into, um, and and check out check out Merrick's uh, uh, Patreon page. He's got some great great stuff on here. So uh, you are now your work in progress on Volume Three of Freeman Colby. What can your readers uh, expect from Volume Three? That it uh, is it. The continuing the story. Or there's. Um, new new action and adventure i don't know what to call it for like yeah. compared well to it's two.
1: 1864 so if um if you know your civil war history you know that um freeman colby's returning to active duty in april late april 1864 he's about to go through i, I he's about to be directly involved in some of the most intense bloody combat north america has ever seen you know Mm. um the wilderness Spotsylvania. um he wasn't at cold harbor but he was you know nearby and then the siege of petersburg um and the siege of richmond he he's he comes and goes through all that in his letters and he he really he shares a couple details in his letters but you i i really have to go into other people's accounts and um and it's intense stuff right um and and the battle of the crater happens they were posted nearby um so what i'm doing the uh, my approach is in volume two it really fragmented because freeman colby spent most of 18 a good part of 1863 in the hospital um so i follow his his the, the the other guy from Henneker, um, Jonas Bacon, his friend, his childhood friend and neighbor, they're both in the same unit. So I follow Jonas Bacon through a good part of the book as he's on his own suddenly in this regiment marching into Virginia. And then I go back and follow Freeman Colby in the hospital, but I have to do that through a nurse's letter, Sarah Lowe. Um, and also Walt Whitman is volunteering at the same time in the hospitals, You know, spending all his free time there. So he's in there too. And volume three is really gonna it's like parallel tracks. It's gonna follow all of them. Um, Freeman Colby. you'll you can see on that page you're looking, I do this on the patreon I put. Um, I kind of build the book as we go from this one central post. So you can always go back to that post and find the latest stuff. And in this case, it's it's tracked. So you can find what's going on in Sarah Lowe's narrative and what's going on in Walt Whitman's narrative um, and what's going on in Freeman Colby's narrative. And I'm also sticking with um, a couple of like um, a couple of characters who have escaped from slavery and come across the lines. One of whom is um, enlisting in the 23rd U.S. Colored Troops, as they were called, an African American regiment. And they'll show up later at the Siege of Petersburg. So these these tracks kind of separate and then come back together. Um, and while I can't I can't show that. They, some of them, I can't show that they were actually in the same time at the same place. I know by their letters they were like at least in the same town, on the same dates. You know, so they they would have had some common experience. Um, and I'm upfront about that in the graphic novel. Hmm. My my only other option, I briefly considered doing these books and just kind of blacking out between the letters, and being like, okay, here's Freeman Colby's letter from June. Next letter is September. Maybe I'll just have a little paragraph saying here are the major historical events going on and now here's the next thing we know. And that would have been more historically accurate in a small sense, but right. um, but I'm, it's such a challenge and it's so fun to try to figure out um, how can I tell these people's stories respectfully and represent their stories the way I think they would mm-hmm. feel like they, I think the more, the more detail, the more representational you get in the artwork, like I said, the further you get from what actually happened. Cause I don't know what actually happened. Right. So I, so I, my, my approach is to draw as little as possible and get as close as possible to exactly what I think happened based on, you know, three or four sources. So do you, how do you, how do you, I don't think we talked about this
0: last year. How do you do that? Do you actually write out an entire script? Or do you start with notes? So, how does this work when you, as you're you're working on this? Do you script everything out and then sketch and then ink? Well, about your process, you.
1: the uh, the script is the letter. So, I have transcripts of the letters um, right here. This one happens to be open to um, Freeman Colby's letter from Carver Hospital, April first, eighteen sixty-four. So, it's a transcript okay. of the letter. And I just go through that, and I I mark it up to divide it up into um, the big ideas. Okay. And usually, like each paragraph becomes a page, unless it starts to um, live and breathe and tell a story, and then it might become two or three pages. Um, but I I I look at a paragraph or so or a part of the story, and if it's you know you you divide it up and you kind of find the rhythm of the story. Mm. So if it's like six ideas or six actions, I might do six or eight panels um, or six panels, you know, one of them, a big panel and then some small panels under it. However, you want to emphasize and and create a rhythm to the storytelling. So the pages are all there. It's like a grid approach. The text all comes directly out of that letter. In this case, like here, he's writing home about being in the hospital tent in camp. And the lice that they found crawling all over themselves, you know. You get these, you get because they're not they're not thinking, they're not like trying to make a movie. They're not trying to write a novel. They're just trying to share some sense of what the experience was with people they care about, um, in all these letters and diary entries. So um, I think because of that, you get a really, especially from letters, you get a really honest take on what's happening today. Right. You know, you don't get like three years later, what's the story I want to tell about my time in the civil war. You get, you know, here's what's going on right now and how I feel about it. Like there's that
0: taking away that sense of nostalgia. Cause if you look back, you know, if you always look back on your memories, you, there is a sense of nostalgia about it. But like you say, Mm -hmm. this is like happening right now. Do you, I'll
1: go ahead. Just cause you mentioned, um, you mentioned that and, and, uh, I just thought of something with, with some of their, um, with the regimental history that I have, not the letters, but I can supplement the letters with the regimental history, which collects a lot of different people's journals and diaries and and recollections. But there's this interesting thing that happens in the regimental history where when they go into combat, they'll switch to present tense. Sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's as if they're like telling the story and writing it and they start, it starts happening right then and they're talking in the present tense. Right. Instead of saying, here's what we did. So so that tells me a lot that that I, I change. There's parts of the book where I don't have them tell the story, I just leave the words out and show what's happening. Right, And that's where I'm most tentative too, because that's where I'm doing the most. Like, Merrick making a comic, yeah. <laughs> including myself as the cartoonist. Oh, wouldn't this look cool? But I'm trying to do that based on what they say so how
0: far along are you on volume three now
1: um uh, about 200 pages in it's been um i keep a chart each month of pages i'm working on and and it's going very slowly the past for some reason the past year it's been very hard to finish any projects (laughs) so it's been going slowly but i i've just been patient with that because i'm you know i'm like researching jeremiah crocker and i'm I'm getting back into teaching now that the schools are starting to schedule things again. Right. Um, and I just know that everything that happens between now and when that book is done is essential learning for what the book's gonna be. Right. Um, so I, I'm not, there's a time to push yourself and a time to be patient. And I'm kind of in a pushy patient mode. <laughs> I know- do you, do, you
0: have a, do you have a deadline that you are giving yourself for this book?
1: Uh, if you asked me a year ago, I would have said I, I'll definitely have it by spring 2021. But you know, <laughs> a year ago, we were talking about schools being closed for two weeks, maybe. Right. So, um, so yeah, I don't. I'm. I'm. It'll be done when it's done. But um, at some point, once I once I wrap up the stuff I'm working on now, I will start cracking the whip on that. And what I do with that is I I just set a goal based on like my teaching schedule and and other projects. And I'll just say, okay, I'm going to do you know a page a day or two pages a day. For most of Volume Two, I I set a goal of three pages a day and pretty much stuck to it. Um, I I averaged about two pages a day okay. over the over the well, yeah, over the year and a half I was working on it.
0: So another historical thing you're working on. Uh, do you want to talk to us a bit about the stories of uh, Daisy Turner?
1: yeah that's that's really exciting um we just had a meeting on that there's i i probably shouldn't try to recall specifics but it should be out as a graphic novel um, another anthology through vermont folklife center um and they're they're putting it together um for this hopefully in the next few months it's probably bad luck to give a uh, to give a target date. <laughs> Hopefully in the next few months. Hopefully this year, let's say. But that's what I said a year ago, too. It'll be out this year, definitely. Um these things just take time, so I'm being patient. But yeah, that's that's a really exciting project, too. Um speaking of, you know, stories that stories that almost didn't get saved or or um her her story is just so inspiring. She is a uh, for people who don't know you would, you would probably be most likely to know Daisy Turner from maybe her appearance in Ken Burns' Civil War series. She appears in a couple places reciting poetry mm. um, as basically a, an almost 100-year-old storyteller um, interviewed by Jane Beck in the 1980s when she was 90-something. Um, she was born in the 1880s and her father She was born in Vermont and her father, um, Alec Turner, had been enslaved in Virginia before the Civil War. And his father had been enslaved and brought from Africa. Wow. So right there, her oral history, the stories that she told that were passed directly to her within within a generation past her dad reached all the way back to Africa. And she retains that oral history. And she would recite these stories and these poems and tell these amazing tales, um, as an old woman at least. That's, that's the transcripts and the, the work that we are working from in this book. So the book is a, a group of artists who are interpreting her stories. And I, they asked us which of her stories we'd be most interested in. And, and uh, I gravitated towards her father's memories of the Civil War. Um, because I, and you can see a little of that artwork there. My, my piece of the story, um, starts in 1865 at the very end of the civil war. Um, and she, she used the term Holocaust. Mm. It was like the end of the world. That's how he described it to her. And, um, I think what caught my attention there is that Freeman Colby in his letters back is relatively upbeat considering the circumstances he's in, you know, yeah. and he's writing back to his family and this war means something. And do you think Lincoln will win the election and, um, and we'll beat him, Don't you worry? You know, he's, he's being upbeat. Right. And when, and so, and that's kind of the story he tells about the war. It's a relatively upbeat story and a story of advancement. When Alec Turner told his kids, like his, his dad, his young daughters about this war, apparently he told it like it was the end of the world. Yeah. hear Daisy Turner tell it, like it was just a dog fight, dog, knock down, drag out, end of the world fight, just, and, um, and that's such a different telling of the same, like they were in almost the same place at the same time, right yeah. around Richmond and Petersburg at the end of the war and they have such radically different tellings of it and such radically different experiences of coming to new england after the civil war freeman colby comes home and mm-hmm. comes back to his home here in town and is working on the school committee and you know he's he's um he returns to his family and and daisy turner's dad that in that photo that you see there on the page you have there he goes up to maine he works in the slate quarries mm you know, um, and the stories of of what it was like working in the slate quarries in Maine. That photo is Alec Turner. I, in some of my posts, I zoom in on that and you can pick apart these photos and find all these details and their clothes and their their body language. Um, and And other people have done a lot of work with those photos. But we have the stories and we actually have some photos from from. family history to to cartoon from um so so i gravitated towards that that telling of the end of the war and what he did after the war and how he ended up in the woods in vermont um you know coming up to work the lumber trade right so
0: dave mcnally dave mcnally asked if i wanted to get copies of the daisy turner graphic novel how would i go about getting some i'd love to add these to our school
1: Yeah, they should be that. Thank you. Good question. Um, They should be available for uh, schools and libraries in Vermont. Um, It'll be out through the Vermont Folklife Center, but definitely David, if you want to follow me on social media or go to my site and sign up there, um, I'll be posting about that. We don't, we don't have a specific link yet, but we will soon. Okay. And I'm not the person to ask what it'll be.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, so uh before we, before we went on so we we I had all kinds of all kinds of tabs ready to talk about but we've already hit our hour mark so we should, we'll have to get you back on again and we can talk about your birds and talk about your mm-hmm. your comics comics workshop that we mentioned earlier as well which has been extremely entertaining. So 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 Merrick you have people can find you at uh merrickbennett.com and on there you have all of your work, I, you can, you can check out your, your, your comics workshops on there. You do great virtual comic workshops as well. Uh, Is that still, that's still uh, people can still um, ask about that as
1: well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm staying virtual through this year. Um, I haven't been vaccinated. I shouldn't be early on in the line. You know, I'm just going to wait my turn and, uh, and I, we can actually do a lot virtually. It's not the same as drawing together in the classroom, Right. There's so much that, you know, all my projects I have right here at my desk, I can turn on the little desktop camera and we can draw together and we're up close in some ways that you can't get when you're doing an assembly, you know, or or a classroom visit. Um, So I look forward to returning to schools, but for this year, I'm going to be all virtual still. Right. It's Um, weird because it's, it's it's distance, it's virtual,
0: but there's also the sense of intimacy like you said, you can, and, and your live stream drawings, I mean, uh, and check out, and check out Merrick's uh, uh, YouTube page as well, where Mm -hmm. he does these great live stream uh, little workshops as well that have, have really taken off over the last, uh, over the last Mm -hmm. few months as well, especially your, your library working and you you do something at least like every few days you're doing a live stream correct
1: well i i decided this is my my uh i don't know if it's a plan for increased sanity or decreased craziness but um i'm trying to do just a regular live draw at a regular time so for this winter it was all right mondays and fridays we'll just go on and and do uh friday doodle or monday monster and Kind of build each one builds on what we've done already, um, right. and then we circle back and practice the same techniques but in a different context. Right. It's been a lot of fun. Um, There's some school groups that join too, which is right. great because you get these the pictures of the kids' artwork, and yeah. it's, it's so fun to see. And that's been so. I mean, I've, I, we've all missed you know going to conventions, drawing with each other in the same room together. Right. Um, and yeah, like you say, it's you can you can really feel a sense of intimacy when you're right there over someone's shoulder as right. they draw. Um, so, yeah. And I, I don't really announce those on social media. They pop up. But then I send out the invites through the Patreon. Right. Media be being like, hey, folks, come on back here backstage. You get all the cool stuff and the scans and the printables and and the invites. <laughs> and
0: really another fun. reason why to subscribe to your Patreon. So, yeah, that's good.
1: It's not a fun process when I think of like the the past year, I just, the way I describe it is like, it's I'm doing the same work I've always done, but it's like, I'm doing it in a different country because you just have to learn a totally different system of connecting and getting the work out there. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's been a good year for learning, I guess.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Merrick. And, uh and Matt, let's get you back on again. And we got plenty more things to talk about. So. Yeah. Yeah, Thank you. Nice
1: to talk with you again. Yeah. So look, Look, no, no global crisis while we've been talking. Or maybe I should check the news. <laughs> this is good. First just time. the same one. Just the same one going on. Oh <laughs> well, yeah, but now it's normal. Yeah. Now we're used to it. Next.
0: Yeah.
1: All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Nice to talk with you. Thank you, everybody. You know, I just, I just found that out. I was, I was looking up the roots of the word art and inertia is actually, the root of that is the same Proto-Indo-European as art. Really? Yeah. It's like, cause art originally meant like intention, you know, something artificial, something you make intentionally. Right. Doesn't, it doesn't just happen in nature. It's art. It's <laughs> people and something that's inert is like, has no intention in it. Was not oh, wow. made or created. It's just inert. Really?
0: Okay. Wow. Yeah,
1: I love that sense of like inert. It just sits there. But art is lively. Has human yeah. creative intention to it.
0: Art has motion. It has like yeah direction and intent. Oh, that's really cool.
1: Wow. Okay. Yeah. It does something. It moves you somehow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then you walk past like a, a you know, something that is not art and it just doesn't move you it's inert right wow
0: okay wow that's interesting that's good now now i have now i have something to put at the end of the, at, at the end and at the end of our interview then i can add
1: that little section that's good cool. <laughs> kids stay tuned after the credits for a little bit of etymological fun <laughs>